And when he said that, when I tried to just think of something different, what I said was, well, then I guess morality just loves me or something. Hello, the internet. You are listening to Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. This is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big, important things. I'm Luke T. Harrington, award-winning author of fiction and nonfiction, and also champion of penultimate fighting. I have no idea what penultimate fighting is. I just made it up so I can claim to be the champion. Um, if ultimate fighting is no holds barred, then I guess penultimate fighting would be some holds barred. Maybe it's when my young daughters, uh, challenge me to a boxing match, which they do with alarming frequency. And of course they always lose. I I'm going to call that penultimate fighting. Now I'm thinking about that because I'm thinking about the word penultimate. Ultimate, of course, uh, comes from Latin roots, meaning final. But that's not what people usually use it to mean. They use it to mean really big, really cool, really awesome, which is where you get stuff like ultimate fighting, ultimate frisbee. But then there's the word penultimate, pen meaning almost, which I believe is Greek roots, uh, which means next to last. And it still means next to last. It doesn't mean almost really cool or almost the biggest and the best. Um, so that's kind of just a weird weird situation. Anyway, I'm thinking about this mainly because this is the penultimate episode of Change My Mind. Uh, we got one episode after this in two weeks, and then I'm done. I'm out of here. Uh, my producer Blake and I have been talking it over. We've decided we can, we've done about all we can do with this show. We've taken it about as far as it can go. Um, and I'm kind of excited to move on to the next thing, uh, which for me, is that I'm going to be pretty much a full-time novelist going forward. Um, that's kind of what I've always wanted to do with my life. That's been the dream since six years old. Um, and I am pretty excited to have the opportunity to do it. I've got, a, I've got an agent and I've got the financial security and I can just stop mucking around and all the other random stuff, uh, the gig work and other stuff I used to do. Um, so we're bringing change my mind to a close. We got one more episode in two weeks and then I'm gone for good. Um, so if you want to stay in touch with me, um, I'm actually barely on social media these days, which I've talked about a bit and written about elsewhere. I have no plans at the moment to, uh, have more of a presence on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Um, the only thing I'm doing uh, besides writing novels these days, is writing on a Substack. Um, and Substack, if you don't know, is a newsletter that a lot of different types of writers use. Um, it is a blog also. <laughs> so you write on the website and then people can go to your website and they can read your posts there. Uh, but people can also sign up to receive your posts in their email inbox, um, which is nice. I'm subscribed to several Substacks myself maybe half a dozen or so of writers I really like. And it's great because every time they post, I get a little ding and there it is on my phone or I can read it on my iPad or my computer. Um, it's pretty great. And it's it's a great way to keep up with writers that you like. 
Um, so I'm trying to build my Substack audience at the moment uh, because going forward, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to publish novels and I'm going to write on my Substack. Um, so if you wouldn't mind signing up for my Substack, I've got a nice little free gift for you ready to go. Um, everyone who signs up to receive my Substack in their email inbox gets both of my published books in ebook form. Um, so that's Ophelia Alive, A Ghost Story, which was my first novel that I published back in 2016. Uh, it's kind of a weird literary psychological thriller um, with a very dark sense of humor. A lot of people seem to like it. It won a few awards. And also my nonfiction debut, um, which came out a couple of years ago. It's called Murder Bears, Moonshine and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Bemused, and Hopefully Informed. And that is my humor book about the Bible, uh, which is thoroughly researched and guaranteed to make the old ladies in the front row of your church cl clutch their pearls. Um, but it is just a book about the Bible written with a general audience in mind. So if you believe, if you don't believe, you will learn something from it. If you're interested in the ancient world and ancient texts, uh, you will probably like it. You will probably get something out of it. So those two books in ebook form are free to anyone who signs up for my Substack. So you can go to luketharrington.substack.com or just go to my website, luketharrington.com, and there's a link right at the top to my Substack. And just enter your email address, sign up, and you will get uh, roughly monthly posts from me, um, which is just going to be me writing about whatever I feel like writing about. Um, the last one I published was about how I'm, I think I'm done with social media. Like I just don't get anything out of it anymore. Uh, before that I wrote about taking up weightlifting and how that's kind of changed things for me. And the one before that is about the musical Little Shop of Horrors, um, which is kind of the intersection of my interests. It's a musical, it's a comedy, it's a horror thing, not a horror movie, a horror play. Is that a thing? Uh, I guess that there are a couple movie versions as well. Anyway, that's the sort of thing I write about. Um, just whatever my deep and or humorous thoughts are for that month. Um, it's, you know, so it's not going to clog up your inbox. I'm not, I'm not publishing like every day or even every week. It's, it's roughly once a month and it comes with two free books. So I would love if you would keep in touch with me after this show is off the air, uh, go to luketharrington.substack.com and sign up. Thank you so much. All right. Well, this week I have a great conversation for you. Um, this might be my favorite interview I've ever conducted. It just pops and sizzles, uh, which has almost everything to do with my guest and very little to do with me. Um, I got Leah Labresco Sargent on the show. Um, she's a pretty well-known writer out there, a, a, a writer for 538 and for Plow, um, both secular and Christian publications. Um, and she told me a really fascinating story about how she was raised an atheist, was a pretty convinced atheist, and then she met some Catholics and Anglicans and Eastern Orthodox Christians at Yale, of all places. Um, and now she is a Catholic. Um, really fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed it. I know you will too. I'll let Leah introduce herself and I will see you on the other side.
welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Leah is probably best known as a contributor to 538, many other publications, including Plow Magazine, author of Arriving at Amen. Is it Arriving at Amen or Amen? Do you have a preference? I say Arriving at Amen. Okay. But you know, right. I'm open to people pronouncing it however they want, provided they buy the book. <laughs> Understandable. Also, a new mother. Is this your first? Uh, I have a two-year-old and okay. a two-month-old. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. So as she just told me, we're actually racing against the clock here because uh, the baby could wake up at any time. But I'm so glad you you took the time to come on the show. I've been following you for quite some time on Twitter and 538 and other places, and I am very excited. What we're talking about today is your conversion to Catholicism, yes? That's right. <laughs> Which is seems to be a common theme on this show. Um, people I reach out to always, their, their go-to is always, I want to talk about my religious conversion. It's like, okay, we do that. We do that. Not the only thing we do, but I'm happy to do it. Before we jump into that, do you have anything to add to the intro I just gave you? Or, <laughs> well, I think if anyone's interested, I also run a Substack called Other Feminisms. That's a place to talk about the dignity of dependence in a culture that often views our worth based on how autonomous we are, how little we need others. Let's, uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's jump into the Catholicism thing. Where does this begin for you? Uh, what sort of beliefs were you raised with? Well, I grew up as an atheist in a community that was pretty non-religious. Okay. I grew up on Long Island, so a lot of my classmates were secular Jews. There were a lot of bar and bat mitzvahs, but not a lot of religious practice beyond <laughs> you know, that kind of graduation people have from Hebrew school. Sure. And so I didn't really know people who themselves were practicing their faith in a way I knew about until I went to college. I'm sure there were some demographically, but it, for me, Christianity was always something I knew of at a distance. And that meant usually when it caused problems, fights about teaching science in public schools, political questions, the kinds of things that get Christians onto political talk shows, which is a terrible portrait um, of anything, really, but yeah. particularly of Christianity. For sure. For sure. Um, you say you grew up an atheist. Does that mean you're parents were atheists. Um, whenever you asked, they just shrugged and said, yeah, there's no God. It's like the, he's like the tooth fairies. <laughs> Both my parents are not religious. And I think I was more interested in atheism as a, an active thing than they were. I grew up around the time of the new atheist movement. Mm, so mm. I was reading Dawkins and Hitchens and so on. You know, and I thought they were interesting, but what I thought was missing in some ways, including when I was an atheist I wanted more of a positive articulation of what morality was rooted in and how we should live. I didn't think it was a problem that they focused more often on debunking religion, but I saw that as a first step. You, know, you first want to get someone to stop being religious, but you can't just not be religious and have that be your identity. That wasn't my identity as an atheist. Mm -hmm. you know, I could tell you as an atheist is the answer to, do you believe in God? But that's not an answer to how do I order my life? And if people had asked me that in high school, I, a very weird person, would have said, well, I'm a deontologist with an interest in stoicism. <laughs> you want to maybe define deontology and stoicism? <laughs> I mean, I know what they are, but I'm not sure uh, all the... All the no, it's are. very fair. And plus, yeah. you know, you can't always be sure people have the same view of you know, what's important to them about it. Right. So for, for sure. me, 
you know, what I found really compelling about deontology is that you can have different ways of saying, how do I look at a situation and decide what the right thing to do is? And for a lot of people, the intuitive answer is utilitarianism or consequentialism. You look at what will happen Mm. and you kind of pick which outcome do I want. Sure. That's kind of incomplete because for one thing, you can wind yourself doing a lot of things that are bad that you feel bad about doing, but you know, enough good is happening. You think it's outweighed. You can kind of wind up being blackmailed where someone's like, you know, oh, I'll pay you a thousand dollars to litter. And then you can donate a thousand dollars to charity. <laughs> so don't you have to do this mildly bad thing? Yeah. No, I thought that was bunk. I was interested <laughs> in deontology, which is rules-based. Mm. You think about what is a universal rule, something I could will for everyone in my situation, and I pick the thing that's right by those lights, whether or not it leads to something good in the moment, because it's not about just my particular circumstances, it's about the rules I need to follow. Right, right. So that would be deontology and stoicism. So for stoicism, that's kind of the focus on what do I control and how do I make sure I don't mess up my whole life or my way of thinking by getting upset about things I don't control. You know, it's a a sort of cheerful resignation. Stoics aren't flat-faced, emotionless people. And I still like this, even though I don't identify primarily as a Stoic. A Stoic ideally takes more joy in day-to-day life because they're not bogged down by saying, I went out walking and then it started raining. Now I'm wet and I'm miserable. They just go, I'm wet. That's true. My feelings aren't going to make me any more dry. So why you know, grump about it? You focus on what you can control. So these were philosophies you encountered in, say, high school and just kind of adopted as this is what I'm going to be. Or... I had one of those like little encyclopedias of philosophy when I was in elementary school and I got right very on. into it. So yeah. I, I was attached to this for a while. Cool. Yeah, I have a seven-year-old daughter who I started talking to her a bit about Plato and she got really interested in philosophy. So I, I got her a book on philosophy for kids and she read like the first two pages and got freaked out. And that was the end of it. Um, well, kids take <laughs> philosophy seriously. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's totally to their credit. Adults tend to teach philosophy as of its intellectual history, but all philosophy is asking you, will you change the way you're living your life in accord with these ideas? It's not meant just to be, you know, oh, now I've learned what goes under the bullet points for stoicism. It's always a question of, is this true? And if it is, will you do it? I think her thing was she got to a a mention of like Cartesian solipsism or whatever of like, how can you really know anything outside you? And that was, that was enough. Like (laughs) we need to take a break from philosophy after that. (laughs) That's legit. (laughs) He said you really didn't encounter Christians actually living out their faith until college. Can we talk about that a little bit? Where'd you go to college and what did you encounter there? I went to Yale and I joined a debate group while I was there. And it wasn't a debate group like you might be picturing where you pick a side at random and then you see how well you can argue for the side you're assigned to. It was what I'd call a philosophical debating society. Everyone Hmm. is only arguing for things they actually think. Interesting. And the reason is we're not kind of just developing our ability to argue. We're seeking truth together. And Mm. if I were very good at arguing for things that were false, I might convince you to believe them. And that would be terrible. So so I was meeting all these people who were very weird in many cases. The kind of people who were attracted to this were more likely to be monarchists or seasteaders than folks who just had normal (laughs) beliefs. 
But they were all pretty sincere, even though they were a little weird. And it meant I was meeting really smart people who were themselves Christian or even were Christian converts, which Mm -hmm. really cut against some of the new atheism ideas I'd been exposed to, which were really targeted at a kind of lowest denomination American Protestantism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're focused on a kind of religion that was so dumb and so internally inconsistent, you just had to poke it a few places and it would fall apart. And I was meeting folks who were really up to poke at their ideas and had a sturdier foundation for what they believed than I thought was possible. Hmm. So, um, yeah, just the existence of converts <laughs> was enough to make Smart you converts, yeah. Mar- math major converts. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, are are a lot of these converts uh, specifically Catholic? Then, or is it is it kind most of, a of them mix? were ca- converts either to Catholicism or to Eastern Orthodoxy? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which makes sense, uh, <laughs> being that there's a much stronger philosophical foundation there what are some of the what are some of the ideas uh you encounter then talking talking to these people in college that start making you think well in many ways i was interested in arguing them out of their faith because i liked them right i'm not going to leave people (laughs) i like mired in something i think is false but i realized that i had to do more research to argue them out of it because some Mm. of the kind of new atheism jibes just didn't hit Mm-hmm. You know, arguments about, well, you say the Bible is something that tells the truth, but people all take these different ideas from the Bible. How can you say just to read it? Mm-hmm. And my friends would say, we we definitely don't say to do that, you know, <laughs> any more than we'd say just, you know, read this complicated math proof or this philosophical work entirely on your own and grapple with it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's mm-hmm. a tradition and a history of interpreting it. And of course, you'll go wrong if you just read it with no context or no attention for its tradition. Definitely do not do that. Mm -hmm. And so that led me to be interested in what is the history? What is the tradition? And I think one of the, the two books that really made a difference to how I thought about Christianity initially were C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Mm -hmm. And that was partly because I felt Lewis himself was articulating so well what I believed as an atheist in the opening few chapters. Mm-hmm. Because before he makes a case for the reasonableness of Christianity, he's really making a case for the reasonableness of believing that morality exists, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I had come in strongly believing in the same way that everyone strongly believes in the reality of physical objects. Unless, like your daughter, they then encounter a question about it. But people don't usually start with that question. They start with, obviously, you know, I'm talking to you through a computer that's actually here resting on a table that isn't merely illusion and so on. But for some reason, people get a little, it's easier to knock them off their certainty about morality. But for me, these were equally sure things. In fact, if anything, if I had to pick, morality seemed more sure, more real. And Lewis is making the case for this in mere Christianity at the beginning. And I loved it. I would have ripped out just those pages, stapled them together and used them as my moral realism, atheist evangelist track. (laughs) But then he keeps going. Then he keeps going. I thought he was wrong. (laughs) But, you know, as someone who had appreciated the way he had argued, I thought there was a real coherence and attention to truth. I thought he was wrong, but not trivially wrong. Mm. I thought it was a, an error, but one that, you wouldn't notice was an error. It was well-founded. It held together pretty well. 
you could think of this as the difference between a badly written fantasy novel where you just kind of can't believe the world is real. It's all painted <laughs> flats. Yeah. And one where you go, well, this isn't a real world, I don't think, but <laughs> you could live in it. It's not just thin in the way a badly written one is. If there's one thing Lewis is known for, it's creating convincing fantasy worlds. So. Well, not in Tolkien's <laughs> estimation. Tolkien well, thinks it's exactly that kind of non-coherent yeah i mean it's so bad about that (laughs) but so lewis lewis made christianity seem reasonable something that could hold together yeah the other book i read was by gk chesterton he really Mm. pushes in the other direction you know lewis just you know holds your hand calmly and says like this all can hold together you don't have to be a crazy person to believe it and then chesterton (laughs) kind of bursts in through the windows like but it helps it helps (laughs) to be a little crazy he's getting at besides just a general exuberance and fascination with paradox is that Christianity makes big claims that aren't just about being a good person generally in a way everyone can agree with. Mm. It makes claims that hold together or fall based on whether the core claim about God and about Christ is true. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. Chesterton really doesn't make the case that you could ever live and let live alongside Christians. The Christian Mm. claim is such that you have to try and figure out whether it's true. And if it's true, you have to become one. And if it's false, you should spend your life trying to destroy it. And so I liked that. I thought that was pretty compelling. Either way you win, right? Um. Either way you take it seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sure, cool. Um, So these are things you read in college. Um, did they convince you at that point? Are you are you are you ready to <laughs> kneel in front of the altar in college or no, what happens? They, what they really did was built out this idea that Christianity was relatively coherent, mm. that it held together pretty well, but it wasn't something I thought was true. Mm. You could think of it as a a big clockwork mechanism that all fits <laughs> together and the gears are nicely cut, but it isn't going, it isn't alive, it isn't powered. It's just interesting. <laughs> and meanwhile, I was interested in, in kind of fleshing out my atheist philosophy. Like I said, I thought this was the next thing after new atheism. What are we sure. making the pitch for? Yeah. And my own philosophy was much less beautiful than Christianity because mm. it was patchier. And you know, mm. I hadn't had 2000 years and hundreds <laughs> of thousands of people working on it together. Yeah, I was going to I was going to say it almost has to be right if you're I don't want to, I mean, making it up as you go is, sounds pejorative. I don't mean it that way, but. You're um, earlier on in the life of the field is how right. you can put it politely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's why that didn't bother me so much. You know, mm. I could see that there were kind of gaps in how well my friend's Christianity fit together versus how kludgy my own philosophy was, but that's exactly how I thought of it. It was work I was doing and you don't want to throw over something that's true for something that's false, but tidy. Sure. Well, and I imagine there's a certain pride in I'm thinking for myself, right? Or is, was that there? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's exciting to build something yourself. And it's hard to relinquish that and say, I'm just adopting something someone else did most of the work on. Sure. Yeah. Um, so you finish college, mm-hmm. you go off into the world. Um, what happens next? Well, a lot of it was still wrestling with what the problems were within my own thinking. So mm-hmm. the third book I read, still in college, that did a lot for me was Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. Hmm. 
And that's the book that kind of tipped me from thinking of myself as a deontologist, someone focused on rules and how to apply them versus someone who identified as a virtue ethicist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference is in deontology, I'm focused on what the rules are. And in my case, I don't want to, to tag all deontologists with this, but you know, deontology to some extent can lead you to think it's more you know, admirable the harder it is to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone offers you $1,000 to litter and you say, no, <laughs> I will not litter. I will not be corrupted. That's more exciting <laughs> than just not littering. And so I had the sense of acting ethically as acting almost against a big headwind, mm-hmm. you know, straining, doing the right thing, These even though it cut against you. decisions in the moment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But virtue ethics really frames this differently, mm-hmm. which is that you want doing the right thing to become part of yourself. So it's not a huge effort. It's not right. something you're constantly conquering yourself to do. It's knit into who you are. It's mm. the way a dancer moves gracefully, even when she's not dancing, because mm. the unity of her body is such that she doesn't lose it when she steps off stage. Yeah, for sure. But the trouble is with deontology, it was easier for me to articulate how we grappled with the system of morality. It was more a question of logic, that idea of, can I universalize what I'm doing, that there's a test I can apply to my actions, that it passes or fails. Mm. Virtue ethics is more, am I behaving in the way I am meant to behave? Mm -hmm. Am I acting according to my telos, my purpose, my end? Right. And there's a reasonable question there for atheists, which is, where did this talos come from? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. How are you getting the sense of who I am meant to be rather than just this logical rule you're applying to actions? <laughs> I've always, always felt like ever since the, the Enlightenment, there's been this big headbutting between utilitarianism and uh, deontology. And it's just like virtue ethics is like, guys, we've been here for millennia. Like, yep. <laughs> we answer all the questions you're fighting over. Like, it's... <laughs> Um, so is that eventually kind of what led you to Catholicism was this, this concern over what the end of humanity is? (laughs) Yes. You know, especially because I kept wrestling with this, this was kind of the core gap in my own thinking. I wanted to find a way to fill, but a lot of the ways I was trying to do it just kept not working. You know, because I was trying basically to say, how do I build up from the physical world or the world that can be observed easily to understand this more transcendent idea? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's something that didn't bother me as much with respect to math, which you could say is also math is the other realm in which we constantly grapple with transcendental realities, mm-hmm. things that mm-hmm. you know describe the physical world but aren't only about the physical world. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, people don't give you as much guff about how can you claim to be a mathematician and an atheist? Where do you think numbers come from? <laughs> and I think, I think there's two reasons for that. One, it's easier to imagine extrapolating from what we observe to the abstractions of math. Mm-hmm. And also that many people just don't like math enough to feel <laughs> like this is a question they have to answer. But I liked math very much. But with morality, I think it was clearer that some of the the answers that might suffice for mathematics of, you know, I can observe just numbers in the world. I can observe quantities and then think about addition as a more abstracted thing and then kind of work my way up a platonic ladder to these bigger ideas don't work as well for ethics. It doesn't feel like Mm -hmm. I 
look around the world, kind of puzzle out what two instances of injustice have to do with each other and Hmm. intuit the idea of injustice. It feels like I have the idea of injustice and I recognize it in things, Hmm. that I have that knowledge prior to observing someone committing fraud or someone taking candy from a baby. The question is, where does that idea come from? And I did not have a good way of justifying that, of if I couldn't build my way up to it, how was it that I came to have knowledge of these things? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So were there, I mean, were there people in your life then that kind of pushed you more in the Catholic direction? Were there, were there books you read that, um, Well, I'd say that it was less, at that point, more books and more just wrestling with this idea and finding other answers unsatisfying. Mm -hmm. Um, And ultimately, the more I got into virtue ethics, the more I noticed points of commonality between me and my Christian friends, even as we Mm -hmm. didn't share kind of the most important idea. Mm -hmm. I even had the experience of going back for an alumni debate and realizing that if you didn't know what Christianity was, you would still think that I sounded like I belonged in the same group as the Christians, that there was something in common with the way we were talking and what we started with to reason about choices. Even if we were on different sides of a particular debate, I felt this very strongly at a debate that was about resolve, nationalize the curriculum, which is prudential. Christians don't have to all have the same view of it. But when it came to what is education for, I sounded like the Catholics and Orthodox people, even if we had different judgments about how to apply that to this question. And so ultimately, I kind of had the the weird impulse after a debate that I was I was already on the Christian team, that I should just fess up to it. But that didn't make any sense to me. You know, I had this strong pull. And from the point of view now as a Christian, I would say it was kind of the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. to me, it just felt like a weird impulse. And I couldn't give into it because I couldn't assent to something I didn't believe to be true, <laughs> no matter how many weird feelings I had about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I can definitely um, imagine, you know, an atheist mind thinking through this stuff and thinking, you know, glomming onto this God thing is the equivalent of just a shrug. Like <laughs> I need something to give foundation to these ideas I already have I guess God's good enough you know I wasn't going to settle yeah yeah um so I guess I guess then the question becomes like what actually convinced you was it was it something was it just a case of like well I need something or was there was there more to it it was kind of a long late night argument with a friend of mine um who has recently been ordained in the Anglican church. And I picked on him because I knew he wanted to be a minister when he grew up. So I thought that meant he had to say yes, if I wanted to wrestle with ideas with him. (laughs) And I'd had what I told you, this kind of impulse of, I am a Christian, I ought to be a Christian. So I was talking through it with him. And I kind of talked through, as I've just done with you, that problem of, Mm -hmm. I have knowledge of something, but I can't articulate how I build my way up to the knowledge. And my friend Ben asked you after I'd gone through a couple different arguments for how to build your way up and why I found them unsatisfying. He said, well, maybe just step out of the rut you're in, that I spend a lot of time kind of re-examining these arguments, seeing if I can fix them. And he said, just try and think of something new, start something fresh and don't keep solving the problem the same way if that's not working. And when he said that, when I tried to just think of something different, 
what I said was, well, then I guess morality just loves me or something. (laughs) And that kind of just came out of my mouth without my thinking about it. And when I thought about it more, to kind of untangle that a little bit or take out the component pieces and look at them, you know, it meant that I believe that if I couldn't, if I had something, but I hadn't gotten there myself, then in some way it wasn't me who was doing the taking, but it that was doing the offering. Hmm. You know, that I believed several things at once and I couldn't hold on to all of them. I didn't believe there was a God. I believed I had knowledge of something transcendent. Hmm. I believed that I didn't have the capacity to go and get that knowledge for myself. Hmm. And I couldn't think all of those at the same time. And when I looked carefully at which I had the least confidence in, which I was ultimately most willing to relinquish, it was the disbelief in God. Hmm. I wasn't going to sell morality short (laughs) by making it smaller than it was. I wasn't going to deny which was true, which is that I had it. Hmm. So somehow instead of me grasping it, it was something being offered to me. Hmm. I mean, I feel like I could imagine, you know, the sort of atheist response to this. which is that, you know, I mean, there's a certain, there's a certain uh, strain of atheism that's like, well, fine, you know, morality is just fiction, but it's, it's, it's a necessary fiction, right? It's what we need to exist with other humans in the world. And that's all it is. And that's fine. I think that's a wuss response. (laughs) I'll say it it straight out. And Atheists wouldn't for a second tolerate that as an answer for why we would need religion. And I wouldn't either as a religious Mm -hmm. person. It's not a necessary fiction. It doesn't just smooth things along. And you can hardly say that about morality. Our differences of opinion about it, you know, just like differences of opinion about religion cause a lot of strife. Mm. If we wanted a necessary fiction or a noble lie, we could do a lot tidier than this and no one can really live that way Hmm. just like no one can even if they say well i i kind of doubt the reality of the physical world they still swerve in their car if there's something's in their way (laughs) so everyone everyone believes morality is real everyone believes the physical world is real even if we're not always sure how do we justify this belief how do we come to have it Hmm. and we don't have a coherent way to live without it so i don't i don't truck with that excuse you can say you know, I'm not sure how to articulate it, or I'm uncomfortable with what that would imply. I want to explore what the alternatives are. And I think you should then. That's the thing. I think both when I was an atheist and now as a Christian, seeking the truth honestly ends well. Hmm. Messily, maybe, but it ends well. And I think that even more strongly as a Christian, because of course, now I think it's not just a solo trek. You know, I can't seek the truth alone. The truth is always seeking me. Yeah, that's good. Um, I find it interesting, I guess, that um, you're drawn to these sort of very traditional forms of Christianity, Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, but it seems to be Anglicans nudging you along, C.S. Lewis, this uh, priest friend of yours. Do you have any comment on that? or? <laughs> Well, you know, I've been reading Chesterton, certainly uh, yeah. not an Anglican, right. strongly a Catholic. Um I think one of the things that falls apart for me a little about churches outside, certainly Catholicism and to an extent Orthodoxy, is that they're less truth-seeking. There's a comfort with schism and division that I think doesn't 
that isn't the marker of people who feel that they're the custodians of an important truth. Hmm. You know, there's in America, there's a tendency to say, well, you know, if you have an issue with your denomination, just switch <laughs> or go plant your own church. Yeah. And again, you think about how would, how would this work in a discipline where the stakes matter? Mm-hmm. For me, again, that's math. You, you can't just say, well, I'm going to go do different math. <laughs> See you guys. You know, first of all, because there's... Well, you can switch from Euclidean geometry to non-Euclidean But they're geometry. all part of one math, right? <laughs> so, and, and even when something's kind of controversial, there's an urgency about winning people over. You know, mathematicians are evangelists, in part mm-hmm. because they're so moved by the beauty of what they're doing. That's mm-hmm. intolerable not to share it or intolerable to have someone deny something you found. But the kind of, oh, just go your own way, see what you find, what's your truth, is an unseriousness about things that are extremely serious. Hmm. Well, we won't talk about my denominational history. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always more tolerant of people who, you know, I, I feel better basically about people who say, well, you shouldn't be in the Catholic church. It's the whore of Babylon. You know, it's heretical. It's idolatrous. You know, I want you to have the whole of the truth, which is you know, my particular flavor of Baptist. Yeah. <laughs> and people who say, oh, it's so great. We're all together. You know, our differences are kind of trivial. And I'm like, are they? <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so here you are talking to your Anglican priest friend late at night, finally come to the realization he was, that... He was in college, to be clear. He's an Anglican priest now, but at the time, okay. he was, you know, a kid. Yeah, And, okay. you know, to a certain extent, so was I. Yeah. Um, you come to, come to this realization that, man, I have to believe in God. Um, what's the next step for you? Do you just show up at the door of your local Catholic church and say, show me the way or... <laughs> Pretty what much. Happened? So really? that night when I was talking to Ben, it was the night before Palm Sunday. So I oh, just went wow. to mass the next day. Oh, yeah. no kidding. No kidding. But, but it wasn't the first time I'd been to mass. I dated a very nice Catholic boy in college, you know, and we'd had a lot of discussions and shared books and readings. And so we had a deal that I went to mass with him in exchange for him going to ballroom dance class with me. <laughs> so it wasn't foreign to me, and yet it very much was, because it's different to go as kind of an anthropologist or even as a you know, kind of comparative religion or theology yeah. person going, what are people doing? What do they think they're doing? Versus I'm going to mass where God is present on the altar and then people eat him. Yeah, yeah. Um obviously a a bigger deal in uh, Catholicism than whatever flavor of Baptist, as we were saying. Um, Mm -hmm. So at at this point, are you pretty much convinced? Like you're, you're sitting there, you know, watching the mass take place and thinking that's Jesus right there up on that altar. Yes. Wow. Because remember I talked about that idea that it was all, is something that all fit together, but Mm -hmm. wasn't turned on. Yeah. And in many ways changing my mind about God, took that thing I already had and turned it on, but I had it. I just, it wasn't animated. That's you know, I still went through RCIA like any other Catholic convert. Yeah. I came, I just changed my mind just before Easter. I came into the church in November. You know, and that meant I had time to ask follow-up questions, sit with what I thought, you know, I don't know that even if I could have, I necessarily would have converted the next day just because in some ways, it's a sign of respect to the weightiness of what it means. I wanted to sit with it and make sure I genuinely believed what I'd said I believed. Mm-hmm. And I was appreciated some of that time. But 
I didn't change my mind. You know, sitting with things only gave me more reasons to enter the church. Hmm. And this was all when you were still in college? No, this is the no. year after I graduated. Year, so I was okay. back for an alumni debate when all this went down. Got it. Got it. So yeah, you sign up for RCIA. Mm-hmm. You go through the process. This, this is all in the course of one year from Palm Sunday to November, That's right. whenever that is. Right mm-hmm. on, right on. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess the, um, the next question probably is when did you tell your parents, uh, when did you tell other secular people in your life, uh, I made sure they, to tell people react? who were close to me before I told people generally online. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and one thing that I appreciated is one of the friends I told, I realized after a bit, I was getting web traffic to my blog from, um, a site where I was surprised, and he'd made a forum post that was, how do I stop my friend from converting to Catholicism? <laughs> it was a, he was very embarrassed that I found it. But it was a really thoughtful post. The internet, so, man. You can't post anything and expect the wrong people not to see it. <laughs> he was you know, trying to find a place to talk that wasn't directly to me so he could compose his thoughts. He thought mm-hmm. Catholicism was false. Mm-hmm. So he thought becoming Catholic, believing something false would make my life worse and make the lives of people around me worse. Mm-hmm. And people were saying sometimes suggestions like, well, just tell her you'll stop talking to her if you don't, if she does this. And people, he's like, that's completely unreasonable. You know, first of all, she cares about truth. So she's not going to be blackmailed by my doing that. <laughs> and I care about her. Like that's, that's not convincing. That's just threatening. And so I saw it and I thought this was all very touching. You know, he really cared about the stakes of what I believed. He tried to mm-hmm. take time to think about how to address it. And he understood it was a question of truth, not a question of just social pull. Mm-hmm. Versus, I found it much less attractive when friends said, like, oh, you're becoming Catholic? Well, whatever makes you happy. Mm-hmm. I thought, who cares? Who cares yeah. what makes me happy? You know, if doing heroin for the rest of my life made me happy, would you have the same reaction? Because what those friends were telling me was, I don't think Catholicism is relevant. I don't mm-hmm. think it has mm-hmm. any real stakes to it. I don't think it matters whether it's true or false. I don't think it will meaningfully change your life. Yeah, And my friend who wanted to stop me, you know, in some ways believed Catholicism a lot more than those friends who were just go along, get along. He thought mm. it makes strong claims about the world. Can I push back on that for a sec? Sure. Because um, I totally, totally get what you're saying there. At the same time, I, I tend to think like it's kind of a necessity of living in any sort of remotely pluralistic society of being able to say that's good for you, you know, like, I mean, you know, this used to be this sort of thing people would fight wars over and millions of people would die because people didn't think Catholicism was true. Isn't, (laughs) isn't, that's good for you. Isn't that in a lot of ways a step forward (laughs) from that? I think it's a a bad solution to a real tension. You You can say other things if you're just trying to avoid settling this question with a knife. And indeed, my friend wasn't trying to do that, right? (laughs) He opposed me. He thought, how can I stop her? Mm. And he thought through what would be an appropriate way to try and do that. Yeah. Um, But he did want to stop me. And I respect Mm. that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't don't make it my business to interfere in the personal decisions of every single person in the world. In many ways, because I don't have the standing to do it. I don't know what decisions they're making. Sure. 
in Catholicism, we talk about fraternal correction as a virtue. Mm -hmm. But it is true that to do fraternal correction, you have to first be a frater, be a brother or sister to someone. It's much harder both to judge rightly and to intervene well, even for something as much as you should stop dating that person. They're bad for you. I'm sure I passed people on the street for whom this is true, and yet I don't know them well enough to know that. And even if I did, they don't know me well enough to trust me. But it's a mark of friendship and of love to speak up when someone is making a bad choice and to kind of invest your relationship with the kind of trust and presence so that people might listen to you and you would listen to them. That is a very good answer. I really appreciate that. I don't think we made it. We made it back to your parents yet. Your parents raised you secular. Do they care? How do they feel about this? Well, they do take it seriously. So they think being Catholic is worse than not being Catholic. (laughs) But, you know, again, you ask this question of like, why doesn't it immediately go to violence? And I'm happy to say, you know, not here either. <laughs> but what they did is they raised me to seek the truth um, mm-hmm. in a very intense and deliberate way. Mm-hmm. And you can't really tell people to throw out the method, even if you think they've applied it a little oddly or they've hit a hiccup, which I think is more how they think of it. Hmm. Uh, in the same way that A scientist who gets a bad result, but who's carrying out an experiment accurately, you don't just say, well, we're going to agree to ignore this experiment. You say, well, I don't understand what happened here. I don't think your results can be right, but you've walked me through what you did. And I think you're applying the method well. And we both have a lot of confidence in the method you're using. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to have to sit with this anomaly, this oddity, Mm -hmm. and see what we do with it. This is maybe off topic or maybe slightly off topic, but I want to, I feel like I want to poke at that a little bit um, just because we're here. And I feel like I read a lot of new atheist arguments 20 years ago or whenever, whenever new atheism was big, I guess, you know, if if I'm sitting here as Richard Dawkins, the question I want to ask is, well, but science eventually reaches consensus. Nobody can agree about religion. Why is that? Like checkmate Christian. (laughs) I think he knows that's not entirely true. Yeah. There's always, for, for topics that have a lot of relevance to people's lives, there's often a slow building consensus or a bunch of cranks who are big enough to have their own sect, per se. I think you see this a lot in questions about nutrition, hmm. where it's just, in some ways, a frustrating point for science. It's one of the parts of science that has immediate relevance to how people live their lives. It's pretty important. Mm. There isn't as much consensus as people would like. I to feel be able like to that's, act on with nutrition, though. That's kind of a structural problem. Of it's very hard to do like a double-blind test on humans that is also ethical. <laughs> it <laughs> is. It is partly sport. a structural problem. Yeah. Uh, though that you can say that's true about a lot of different ways of truth seeking. That we, not everything is double-blind tests, and that's not our only tool for seeking truth. Right. Uh, but it is something where people in good faith can disagree and there are some grifters in the mix and we just haven't gotten to consensus as fast as we want to or need to. Hmm. This happened during the coronavirus pandemic as well, Mm -hmm. where, you know, because people wanted science to speak with one unified authoritative voice, there was a lot of overreaching at the beginning of the pandemic by people who thought of science more as a way of instructing people than of genuinely figuring out what was going on. And it's something that can say, in all honesty, you know, we're not sure yet. We're, we're trying to piece it out. We're leaning in this direction, but it'll be a while before we can tell you confidently. And in fact, 
you have to make decisions in the interim. We can't always sit and wait for science to have a single conclusive answer. That's a really good analogy. I appreciate that. Um, So does that mean as people continue to do research into philosophy and theology, we'll all eventually become Catholic? Is that... (laughs) <laughs> and that's what happened in my debate group for the most part, which I just really? in its favor. Was it really? You know, we had a lot of conversions, mostly to Catholicism and Orthodoxy. We didn't have as many people going the other direction. And mm. people weren't joining with that as their goal. Yeah. People were joining with the goal of, I want to really talk about what's true and how we know. And that process led a lot of them to become Catholic. So that's that not is... definitive evidence. That we yeah, weren't no. certainly doing double blind philosophy, but that's it's suggestive. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, especially in a place like Yale, where secularism is arguably privileged a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, that's not something that's happening at all of Yale. It's not as that people go to Yale and become Catholic generically, or that people are like, oh, enroll there. Everyone knows you come out a Catholic. But I think one of the things that was different about the university versus our debate group is the university had less of a focus on truth-seeking as something mm. you're really doing and more of that tendency to teach philosophy as book reports, as mm. you know, acquiring knowledge, but knowledge that wasn't really dangerous, knowledge that wasn't likely to change your life and that you mm. didn't have to ask if it might. Mm. And our debate group very much always was examining things with the question of, are you going to do anything differently tomorrow, Friday, because of what we're talking about Thursday night? How shall we then live? Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. That's really cool. Well, let me ask you this. Um, aside from your new beliefs themselves, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? I think a big part of it is it's good to explore boldly. It's good to be a little playful. Certainly our debates were, they were about weighty things, but people might have a lot of fun formulating a question or, you know, even just a very good analogy or sometimes a pun. And it's sometimes easier to think deeply by being willing to play with things a little. You want to make sure not to treat them trivially, but you have to be able to see how something might rotate or slot in differently. And that means being a little more open. Um, a little more curious than just focused and serious. And, you know, I think the other thing is, if you're going to adopt a little bit of that playful quality, a little bit of that, how could this fit together? Once you think you've noticed something, you want to make sure you then sit and re-examine it so that you don't get carried away by just playing with ideas and then lose sense of the stakes. All right. Well, I have um, three final questions I ask all of my guests. Um, How do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? Um, You seem very interested in philosophy, so I'm sure your answers will be interesting. Um, What is identity? Does everyone have an identity? How do you know your identity? What do you think? I'm I'm not sure that I'm as invested in questions of personal identity, in part because it can be a way to dodge just the simpler things we know about how to live that apply to everyone. Hmm. Um, you know, I don't need to know that much about me to know how I should treat others. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes it's like delving into, but what is it that's unique and odd about me? You know, how do I find myself? I don't, I don't need that to start engaging with the world. It can be a distraction from just what is universal and how do I cleave to it? Hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. 
Um, second, what is human nature? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? I think there's a nice answer to this in the Catholic communion of the saints, that we're all called to you know, image God, you know, to resemble him as best we can, um, to live up to our adoption into him through Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. But because we're not God, you know, you'll see kind of different attributes of God, different virtues, different parts of the good image more strongly in different people. You can think of this as the way a prism refracts light. Mm-hmm. So you have saints who are known for their chastity, saints who are married and raised a great deal of children, saints who are known for their pacifism, saints who are Joan of Arc and led an army. So you do see a fair amount of variation, but everyone is aiming at the one thing, aiming at union with God. And because of the differences among us, different parts of who God is come out more clearly in different lives. And finally, what is truth? I mean, that's what we've been talking about this whole time, but how do you know truth and how do you know when you found truth? No, I think truth is something that we uncover like archaeologists, not something we build like architects. So sometimes we recognize it because it surprises us. Sometimes we recognize it because we're, you know, to a certain extent, rebuked by it. Um, mm. It it never fits entirely comfortably when we find it because there are things we've held on to or hoped for that we don't see reflected there. But we find that if we cleave more and more to it, if we try and take on its shape rather than the shape we thought it would have, it winds up being good for us. All right. Well, Leah, it has been such a joy talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, before we go, you want to tell people one more time where they can find you, where they can find your work? Absolutely. You can find my website at leahlabresco.com. My books are Arriving at Amen, which is about my conversion in a bit more detail and what came after, and Building the Benedict Option, which is about building thicker Christian community wherever you are. And my most active project these days is Other Feminisms, a substack that's focused on building our identity as people who are dependent on one another, not people who stand alone. Right on. All right. Well, this has been Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. You can email the show at changedmymindpod at gmail.com. You can find the show on Twitter at changedmindpod. And you can find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington. And we're out. I've talked a lot on this show about sort of the social utility of belief um, and how I'm convinced that from a purely anthropological, sociological perspective, the function of belief, whether religious or otherwise, is to hold communities together, right? It is very hard to hold a group of people together if they don't all believe the same thing or at least share similar values. And I've been talking about that because I do believe it's true. Um, I think the research I've done into these things has convinced me of it. Um, But also I've been fixated on that in part because the last seven or eight years, I've just been, in awe of how badly things have fallen apart in 
you know, American culture. Um, and I've been looking for an explanation for that, you know, and I do think the sudden lack of shared beliefs and shared values, um, is at least part of the explanation. Um, but that being said, I don't think beliefs are only something valuable for their social utility. You know, um, I vibed very hard with uh, what Leah was saying about how it matters what's true, you know, and how her friend sort of refused to blackmail her out of her newfound beliefs because it's not about social utility. It's about what is true. And I think fundamentally the, the most important thing a human being can do is seek the truth and live their lives based on it. And I think extremely few people actually have the courage to do that, possibly myself included. Um, I've been on a kick lately reading about hermits and ascetics, uh, which I talked about on my, my Substack a bit. Um, mostly, most recently I read a biography of Tenzin Palmo, um, who I think she made some headlines back in the nineties. Um, but she was a, a woman born in England, I think during world war two, I believe. Um, and in her early adulthood just became convinced that she was a Buddhist um, not so much that she read about Buddhism and converted to it, but that she encountered Buddhist texts for the first time and said, this is what I've always believed. Um, and of course at that time, this was like the sixties, uh, there wasn't much of a Buddhist presence in England. So she actually traveled all the way to, uh, Tibet, um, and later India to, uh, study at a Buddhist monastery, um, become a nun. And then she spent 12 years in solitude in a cave in the mountains of India, uh, just meditating, you know, and that, I mean, that <laughs> to me is, is this real example of, of someone who really believed something like truly believed it to the extent that she was willing to reorganize her life around it which is an incredibly hard thing to do and seems to be harder the more social ties you have, right? The more we live in community, the more we're willing to adjust our belief, our beliefs to match those of the people around us because there's a, a tremendous pressure, right? There are an awful lot of social and economic benefits that come from believing exactly what your peer group believes. Um, and honestly, that's a lot of the reason I'm off social media these days is just, I don't like how it mingles truth and facts with social connection. I don't think that's healthy for either, you know? Um, Social media, especially stuff like Twitter, is just it it replaces the human being with the human being's thoughts and opinions. 
and then just buries you under pressure to conform to those thoughts and opinions or face astronomic consequences. Um, and honestly, I've been talking about this on this show since the very first episode. Uh, for anyone who remembers that one, you can go back and uh, listen to it if you want. Guest was Kevin McLenathan. You can look it up. Um, just the way that social media reduces the human being to his core thoughts or her core thoughts. And most of us have thoughts that are worth very little in the grand scheme of things. Um, and I don't want to think about people that way, right? I want to see the whole human in front of me, not just the embarrassingly facile opinions <laughs> Which I'm not making an exception for myself there. My my own opinions are embarrassingly fossil as well. I'm in a very fortunate position these days to not have to worry about my social or economic status. I'm very taken care of. And I'm trying to use that to the extent I can to really work on myself as a person. To really be willing to grow and be more contemplative and try to start the change I want to see in the world within myself. Um, I'm reading a lot more. Um, I've got the liturgy of the hours sitting on my desk, um, which is a, it's a, it's a Catholic practice of, you know, praying several times a day, praying the Psalms essentially. Um, and uh, Word on Fire Ministry is a, a Catholic ministry um, led by Bishop Robert Barron. Uh, just started putting out sort of a monthly periodical edition of the Liturgy of the, the Hours. And I, I signed up for it um, because I want to have that discipline in my life. Um, I think it would be a much better use of my time than yelling at people on social media Um so, yeah, um, that's what I'm going to be doing going forward. Um, I'll see you guys uh, for one last episode, and then I'm just going to I'm going to kind of retreat into my own head for a while. We'll see. We'll see how healthy that is. I don't know. Um, but once again, yeah, the, the podcast is coming to a close. So I would like to remind you one more time, please sign up for my Substack if you want to continue to get my thoughts on things. Um, it's probably going to be a bit less controversial than this podcast has been. I'm trying to write less about politics and religion these days, um, partly because I don't think it's healthy for me and partly because I would like to um, make my Substack kind of a happier place, you know, something that people enjoy reading. Um, so it, it's designed to have a broad appeal, hopefully. Um, LukeTHarrington.substack.com. Sign up to receive them in your email inbox. And you will get a free ebook of both my published books. Um, I'm very excited about this project. Really hope that you will follow me over there. Change My Mind is produced by Tamar Harrington. It is executive produced by Blake Collier. It is edited by Jonathan Clausen. And it is hosted by the Raven Creek Social Club. I'm Luke T. Harrington. Thank you for listening to Change My Mind. And please don't be afraid to change your mind. Mm-hmm.